Thanks to the recording work of grad student Liam Andrew, here's last night's talk with Hong Koo, who demonstrated Keeper, his algorithmic tool for surfacing Twitter content in the midst of breaking news. Hong knows his stuff. He developed Keeper after doing user experience research for YouTube and Upworthy, and is working on Keeper as part of his time as a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. A shout-out to last night's live blogging team of Alex Gonzalez, Heather Craig, Sasha Costanza-Chuck, Desi Gonzalez, Suruchi Dumpawar, Wang Yu, and Chelsea Barabas. You can see the fruits of their high-speed labor at cms.mit.edu slash keeper, that's K-E-E-P-R. You can join us for our next talk this coming Thursday with Ethan Zuckerman, director of our Center for Civic Media and author of Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. Get full details, as always, at cmsw.mit.edu. You know, since based on my liberal arts background, the world needs information and high-quality information. And when I worked at YouTube, a lot of the most viewed videos were not high-quality. A lot of the comments were very low-quality. So I thought, how can we not just do technical engineering, but also combine it with humanistic values and social sciences to produce, um, w- to have some of the best stuff bubble up, some of the high quality uh, human interests. Um, you know, I, I believe that, as, I, as you'll see later on in the talk, that computers can't do everything. There's limitations and constraints on how much uh, computation can take you. Uh, so based on that theme, I went to join Upworthy, which is a startup um, in 2012. Uh, I was one on the founding team of Upworthy and led the product design group, meaning helping manage the engineers, helping do the user experience design, and building in the features that Upworthy has today. Um, in the last almost two years, Upworthy has been very successful. Um, it's gone from zero to about 20 million unique visitors every month in that time. And I was part of um, the team that helped bring that together. Um, And in 2013, I left Upworthy to work, um, to do some research, to go back to academia and did research at the Neiman uh, Foundation. And being at Harvard, being as part of that elite group of journalists was very transformational for me. Even being, you know, in the greater Cambridge area, uh, sitting in classes with Ethan Zuckerman on uh, participatory media, uh, just thinking on that level, intellectual heights, is, uh, was very enriching. So, um, during my time at the Newman Foundation, um, I worked on this algorithm called Keeper, which I will describe in very great detail right now. So let me first introduce this tweet. Um, this happened in January 15th of 2009. And that's exactly when, um, as I said, mentioned, I, I did an interview at Twitter and talked to all the founders, each one of them, and had a very in-depth discussion about what this means. Um, and they, they, you know, basically, they understood the impact that Twitter will have on the news and how people collect the news and write the news and tell the story about news. Um, the trend that many people have um, called this or given a name to this is that the sources are going direct. 
meaning the sources have their own broadcast capabilities, they have their own uh, identities and profiles, and they have their access to the network to broadcast to the whole world. Um, so this person saw, took a picture of that playing on the Hudson and posted it on Twitter. And that was the news story. This picture told the whole story. A, a pilot emergency did an emergency landing uh, in the Hudson River. And Twitter was the first to break that news. Um, so, uh, you know, at that time, I was talking, uh, thinking about joining that company. But unfortunately, one of the biggest career mistakes I ever made is I turned down the offer. Uh, I decided to stay on at YouTube. And from that on, I've been struggling by myself in journalism and doing as much as I can to contribute to that uh, profession, to make it, take it to the next level. Um, so when I moved back to New York in 2010, uh, I talked to some VCs, talked about you know, what company should I join, uh, what, how should I plan my career, and there's one thing that struck out to me. Uh, one of the Union Square Capital venture capitalists told me this quote. He says, uh, there, is, there is gold in the exhaust fumes of social media streams, meaning social media is producing exhaust fumes. It's all this junk no one really cares for, and you don't really know what to do if it's toxic. But nonetheless, there's gold there if you can mine it, if you can find some way to filter it to get the best quality stuff up there, out of it. So with that type of philosophy, I've been pursuing um, a more automated, a more computational approach to news and journalism and storytelling. Um, so I, my education at UC, UC Berkeley was mainly under uh, Professor Marty Hurst. Uh, she taught a class called Natural Language Processing, and she wrote a paper describing the pros and cons and the pitfalls and how to teach this type of class, because I was the first class that took this class. And um, I, she, I respect her a lot, and she, uh, most of the skills I have that's marketable is due by learning from her. <laughs> Um, so, out of that class, I wrote this paper, and this paper is kind of my initial stab at doing natural language processing. Uh, what I did was, I took about, let's say, 200 blogs and tried to categorize them into four categories. Was it a personal blog? Was it a sports blog? Uh, was it a political blog? Or was it a news blog? So, using an algorithm to automate classification of the type of blog it was. And my, one of my first sentences, I say, blogs are difficult to categorize both by humans and by machines alike because they're written in a capacious style. Because inherently, human language is very difficult to analyze, to, to understand, even by humans. So if you give it to a computer, they will have probably a lot more trouble understanding sarcasm, uh, different writing techniques. Um, even if they could analyze the grammar and the deep structure, they might not still be able to understand the semantics and the meaning and the inside jokes uh, that that the hu human writer is saying. So that's for blogs, and blogs are a little bit longer form even though they're not uh, a whole full-length story. A blog is not 140 characters. So when you move to Twitter, it's really challenging with 140 characters to make sense of the tweets that's coming out into the world. 
But nonetheless, this movement of social media and users going direct to the public with their opinions, their analysis, their, their thoughts uh, is something that's not that, that's getting bigger and bigger as we see it's not really slowing down and the news industry has to be able to um, make sense of it analyze it and take the really important stuff from it to create the new stories that the public needs to hear about so Back in '09 again, I tweeted this single tweet. I think that kind of summarizes my uh, thoughts, my approach to what Twitter uh, is all about. I, I find that 140 characters is actually a lot of meaning if you could think of it this way. If you have a tweet and there's a link in the tweet, all the words around the link, the, those 140 characters is actually describing the link. So that's really powerful insight because when I was doing the blog classification, the strongest indicator of what category the blog is in is not the words of the blog, not what's inside the post. The strongest indicator of what type of blog it is is if I follow the links and go to the, the person who linked to the blog and see the anchor text, the actual words over the links. So if someone's writing about the Yankees and has a Yankees blog, Whoever linked to that site and they say, go to this blog to read about the Yankees. So under, they underline, see, read about the Yankees. That anchor text is the biggest, strongest signal to what that blog's content is about. So just in this same way, a tweet that has the words describing that link also gives us very meaningful information about what's behind the link, what's the topic, what is the whole story. And so if you only have one tweet that's interesting, that might be an um, uh, oddity or just a chance. But if you have thousands of tweets, millions of tweets, then you can see patterns emerging. Then you can be predictive about what, what's the trend, what is happening. So that's, back then, that's one of my insights. Um, and uh, speaking of... Uh, you know, there's a lot of conversations in academia about MOOCs and online education. Professor Marty Hurst was able to somehow corral Twitter's engineering team to co-teach a Twitter class just last year, and I watched all the videos, and you can too, about the engineers talking about how to data mine Twitter from Twitter's perspective. And uh, you know, I learned how to do some of those techniques and uh, 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 those uh, skill sets by watching this lecture uh, last year. And um, based on that skill or knowledge, I applied to the Neiman Foundation. And in my application, this is what I wrote. This is the actual words. from. And I crossed out a, a specific sign, a specific uh, two words, just because I found that over the course of my Neiman Fellowship research, those actually... That's the wrong approach. That's the wrong methodology to find the most interesting sources and try to verify the sources. So I'll explain uh, right now. So when I first started my research at Harvard, I thought, you know, if there's an event that's being live tweeted, whether intentionally or unintentionally by uh, uh, an ad hoc group of people that's self-organizing and covering an event, um, what I would like to do is collect all the tweets they are posting in real time and try to analyze it and use language processing 
natural language processing to uh, algorithms as well as to understand the wisdom of the crowd. And by that I mean specifically the conversation and the relationships between those people who are tweeting and talking to each other. So breaking down that social network and relationships. Um, to identify and highlight tweets that have the strongest resonance. And this algorithm would filter out um, all the noise and try to find the meaningful information of that live tweeted event. So that was the, re uh, the application, the proposal to do this research. The reason I crossed out you know, the tweets that have the strongest resonance is that if you do that, all you end up is, with, with, with all you're left with is like the CNN post, the New York Times articles, the official mainstream version of the story. And sometimes they are slow, sometimes they are behind, and sometimes they even get it wrong. So the strongest resonance is uh, an official publication that has the strongest offline authority but that's not necessarily what you want to look for. What the other Neiman fellows that I work with, uh, they told me, being like the premier journalists in the industry who have been selected to do the, do the full-time one uh, full Neiman fellowship over the course of last year, they told me that what they want instead of strongest resonances, they want to find the sources that no one else has found. They want to be the first to identify those unknown sources. And they want to be the first one to uh, get the context, to find out what the context of the story behind this event is, and to uh, data mine so that they can you know, create a narrative that they can publish. Uh, so they're basically filling, filling in the gaps that not everyone else sees. If the algorithm just counts the most frequently uh, talked about links and talked about uh, users, that's probably not necessarily helping the journalists get ahead of the story. So there's other strategies besides the strongest resonance. Um, so let's dive into a real case study. This is like a real example. What I was doing was um, when the bombing happened, I was actually still in, um, visiting New York City, so I couldn't be in Boston, I couldn't follow it. But my app Keeper, by the way, you know, highlighted that these are the key events. Uh, CNN said there was an explosion near the Boston Marathon finish line. That was in uh, April 15th. And then AP also said the same thing. Two explosive devices found. Um, okay. So that's the bombing day, and I, I wasn't able to be there. But what happened... Uh, the, maybe two days afterwards was the mainstream media got it completely wrong. They actually spread misinformation on that day. As you can see, the Keeper app, I took a screenshot of that day, and you know, CNN reported arrests already made on the 17th, uh, and then AP also said, you know, about it, it's arrest is imminent. Um, so they, you know, they, they've been retweeted 7,000 times, uh, 3,000 times. Um, that was misinformation by the mainstream media. Uh, and the sources, you wonder what sources they are using to, to verify and, and, and they, tr they trust these sources to be able to post this as official stories on their news sites and into their Twitter accounts. 
Um, so we all found out that was not true. Maybe the official authorities like the FBI or, or the police department told them, take down those articles. Those are, that's not the right information. We're still in the manhunt looking for the suspects. And we know the suspects was also misidentified by sources like Twitter and also other social media communities because they tried to do their own like uh, crowdsourcing of the photo matching. So they they found they they, they concluded erroneously that um, Sunil Tripathi was one of the uh, suspects. And at that time, what I was able to find using the Keeper app was that um, P. Williams insisted that this is not the suspect. P. Williams has some source or has some way to know. Uh, and on Twitter, on the NBC News site, he was standing by his story. Um, he is saying categorically that Suneo is not suspect too. Um, and these are some of the real-time tweets that I was able to capture. Um, and as you see from the interface, what Keeper is doing is it pulling, based on the search Sunil, just the first name, it finds other tweets, just like I was saying, you know, the, if you find enough tweets, you can see a pattern emerging. What Keeper does is it, it takes, uses the uh, Twitter API and ingests uh, 100 tweets, real-time, 100 tweets from Twitter. And it parses it into words and names and entities. So that's the entity e extraction, extracting meaningful information. So, and it lists it up there uh, in the top of the app and displays it. And right underneath that, it shows the Twitter users who are either tweeting it or being mentioned in those tweets. So if you have 100 tweets, those ad mentions in the content of the tweet that occurs most frequently is in, in the second section. And then the last one is links. The last section is links of articles. So then I started searching for the keyword suspects, Watertown, because there was um, a shooting at MIT and I was trying to figure out, join the MIT uh, shooting, what was really going on, because I was living right at the Harvard campus on Brattle Street, so it was kind of right in between, in the middle of that uh, series of events, and I had no idea what was going on. I turned on the TV station, just following that link, the live stream, and the person on TV, the news reporting was just repeating the same thing again and again and again. And um, there was not that much insight and up-to-date information that TV provided me. Um, but uh, as you see, you know, this says um, up to the right corner, there's a word called police radio. I followed the link police radio. Why is police radio interesting? Because I, I had no idea what police radio was all about. And this is one of the users who was summarizing all the tweets. Uh, he was, in a way, kind of like a newsroom. He, he was directing traffic and trying to create a version of the truth uh, of what was happening, doing his best to compile everything. And I think a lot of his information actually came from Seth's tweets. 
um, Seth was on the scene and tweeting it and you know, basically sharing what he saw. But this person was uh, tweeting the play-by-play. -play. And this is a lot more up-to-date and detailed than TV, newspaper, blogs, even the Boston Globe, Twitter account. He's trying to make sense of it all. And Seth, as I said, was tweeting this stuff. Um, a real-time kind of play-by-play -play update. Join the manhunt. So the way the algorithm works is you put in a search term, it collects the 100 most recent tweets. And it discovers the topic just because you know, in, these, in, in that tweet, in that search term, Sunil, there's other topics like P. William that pops up. And you'll surface it to you at the very top of the page. And if you do happen to click on one of those topics, what Keeper does is you'll do a second search and combine P. Williams and Sunil and come up with another set of results of tweets and the topics that gets discovered. What I found was the journalism fellows at the Neiman Foundation, they said, this is not enough. Just giving me topics doesn't really help me chase the story down. If you... Just like the expression, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for one meal. But if you give a man, teach a man how to fish, you feed him for a whole lifetime. So what the journalists really were hungry for was sources. They didn't just want topics, topics, because that's a lot of work. If they found the sources of people on the scene, of experts who can give very rich analysis of the official sources, like the police department, then they have this set of sources and they can follow the story very closely and keep the information flowing. And also inform their reader base and audiences. Uh, so that's, that's what's one of the insights. Source credibility is much more valuable and, and effective in following the story than just merely discovering keywords and topics. Um, so Another insight I got from just using this algorithm was I pulled 100 tweets, but that 100 tweets is a very small data set. And then I would have to do another search and pull, let's say, 200 tweets and so on and so on until I filter to the topic I want. Another insight I realized was if you can do any detection of abnormal um, frequency of events, any abnormal behavior um, that it's above and beyond the base behavior, that's actually a very good signal to follow. And that technique I learned from um, a research paper by a Cornell professor uh, who talked about different um, uh, bursts in activity in, in streams. Um, and what that, that's exactly what happened to Seth's account. Uh, Seth Nugan's account went from, I'm not sure how many follows. Uh, I think 8,000 to 45,000. 8,000 to 45,000. In, in two hours. In two hours. So if any algorithm that not just takes a one-time snapshot, one slice point in time, but if you can buy an algorithm that takes snapshot after snapshot after snapshot and look at the signals of metadata of number of retweets, number of followers, the change in the acceleration in that number that's abnormal or way higher than like an average day, 
then you can also detect very interesting sources because why are people mentioning them, following them, and retweeting their tweets so well? So that can be, become a computational technique uh, as opposed to a manual technique. So let's continue on. Um, in this screenshot, I realized there was um, in, during the police chase there was two suspects and some people say one uh, is uh, captured and some other people say both are captured and for me I couldn't make sense of it I, I didn't know what exactly what the story was um, so this is a picture of one of the suspects down on the ground um, and you see the ones I circle, uh, I put a highlight around. It says two suspects in custody, two suspects in custody, both taken to custody. That also was erroneous information at that time and was corrected very quickly. But when misinformation gets treated, it gets repeated and broadcast very quickly, spreads really quickly. So one of the challenges for computational methods is how do you stop misinformation as at the earliest point, at the earliest sources, how do you trace it back? Who is spreading that misinformation and be able to debunk it as soon as you can? And that challenge is very difficult. Um, uh, and up there, the username Seth Manukin was popping up in my radar, so I started following him and watching every single thing he tweeted. Um, and this is a question of even this person asks, what slash who is a, are scanners? Because <laughs> uh, while some people were very much on the scene and know what police scanners are and f listening to it and tuning into it, other people had no clue what was going on. And I was one of them. What exactly, do, how do scanners come up in the story? Uh, so uh, people started explaining it and also gave out warnings that police scanners are pretty much... Um, very dangerous to follow. You know, you should be cautious about how you uh, interpret the police scanners. And even the two suspect names, people thought they heard the names being spoken. In fact, when, uh, the Atlantic uh, did, a, uh, did a, a story about it afterwards. They say it was never in the recording. No one could really hear those names in the recording. So we're not sure how the names got into supposedly the police scanner records. Um, so in terms of my design process, this is what typically I do. I was uh, taught at UC Berkeley in this kind of iterative approach, and I start sketching the interface, and then creating a more uh, very low fidelity sketch, and then I continuously add, add different uh, levels of fidelity or different um, interfaces on top of it. But I like to um, just take an inventory of, of all the information, and then somehow organize it, arrange it on the page, and then keep rearranging until I feel like it's right. And it's continuously being iterated nonstop, even today. Um, so I searched for Watertown, and this is when they started capturing, uh, capturing the second suspect. That was like when they had captured the suspect. And in the algorithm, you see there's a word there that kind of stands out once you know the story. Anyone see that word? Both, right? 
Bow. If you didn't know the story, you have no idea what does Bow have to do with Watertown, police, suspect, Bow. So the algorithm is able to listen in not to the most frequently mentioned words, but if you're a journalist, you want to find those least mentioned words, but still popping up irregularly at abnormal uh, rate and be able to follow those words. And this you just click on 19 hours before he was discovered in the boat. Um, 19 hours meaning? He wasn't discovered in the boat until Friday around 8 p.m. and it looks like this was 1.24 a.m. Right, right. So maybe five, six hours? Um, no, because it was p.m. Oh, okay. And so this is 1 a.m. So maybe the police could have gotten a jump on things if they'd only I, I tried to look at the exact day I was capturing this information, and I myself am puzzled when I took the screenshot. Maybe, you it after, like it, maybe it's like a few hours afterwards, yeah. I believe, after they were celebrating. Because um, this oh, says okay, that, that, yeah, that so he's this been... Is, this is great. So it's 124. Yeah, so it's Saturday. still summarizing the story. Saturday, right. right, so just a couple of hours afterwards. It would have been great if my algorithm can capture <laughs> before <laughs> anyone else knew about it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be really sleuthing journalism, like Sherlock Holmes. This is actually a picture of my my work studio. Uh, so the Neiman Foundation gave me like a whole apartment, and instead of using the dining desk, I put my computer on there. Instead of the TV, I hooked up to the HDMI cable, and that's my computer screen. And that's how I work most of the days, just writing the code to create Keeper for about about four months straight every day, just sitting in front of there. <laughs> um, so ultimately, you know, you you give someone uh, food, you feed them, you teach them how to fish. You they can uh, always have a source and have a good stream of information about a single story. If you're able to formalize a process for the journalists to use the you know computational techniques, natural language processing, and use some a, a tool like Keeper or other tools, then you can really make turn them into a very um, capable, very efficient journalist. And that's ultimately kind of where things are going. What journalists end up doing, even for the recent uh, Washington Navy Yard shooting, what they're doing is they're creating Twitter lists. So by that, I mean they're finding a few good sources, maybe eyewitnesses on the scene, maybe authorities, official Twitter accounts. And they're creating very well-curated Twitter lists and just tuning into those Twitter lists to follow the story. Um, that's like the latest innovation, the state of the art in industry. And this is an example of the Twitter list with Seth in it, of the Watertown uh, events that I followed during that evening, try, trying to keep up with what's going on. Um, so let me go into a more like abstract theoretical level um, about this is my own musing. This is completely my uh, take on the the difference between what people are good at, human beings, and what machines are good at. Uh, machines are really fast. They're good at remembering things. The database stores everything. It can match things, patterns. Uh, it can send messages. It can do data mining, meaning you can index a lot of text and and structure it. Uh, take unstructured text, text and give it more, make it more organized, more presentable, more easy to summarize and digest. So you can recognize patterns. Humans can do stuff that computers cannot do. 
humans can derive meaning, they have feelings, they have actually a physical and body experience. Computers don't necessarily feel pain. If you push it too hard, it just crashes. <laughs> you might like show a fuse, but it's not feeling, uh, you know, the, the, the emotions, the opinions. I, uh, maybe someday you will. I'm sure there's MIT professors working on adding these attributes to computers. Um, but, uh, you know, humans are great at telling a story, making a compelling, creative piece. Uh, and exchanging ideas. And ultimately, I feel like making a value judgment, not just an ethical, moral value judgment, but making even a simple value judgment that this source is credible, this source is worth talking to, that's something that um, humans must do. Um, we all remember during the case of Snowden and, and how he got his story out. He didn't just send the data files to WikiLeaks or to some computer. He sent it to the Guardian journalists, uh, and the Guardian journalist Greenwald actually, even if he got the data, he was not willing to make a value judgment that I'll publish the story. He actually met with him in person, looked him in the eye, at the in the hotel in Hong Kong, and then based on that whole uh, judgment call, he was able to you know trust that story, write the piece, and then publish it to the world. And now it's everyone's more informed. But it does take a uh, journalist who is doing this type of uh, legwork or underground manual work uh, that computers I don't think can do. And it's dangerous if computers get it wrong. It's also spreading the misinformation as no, no checkpoints. Uh, so computers count really fast. We all know that. Um, you know, if, you, if I were to give you a, 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 a task, I say you guys are all journalism students or uh, journalism interns, and I ask you right now, um, tell me what's going on with Obamacare. How would you find out? What would you do to... to learn about Obamacare, see the latest updates, what would you do to um, find the story and then be able to write an intelligent piece that you can publish to the public about it? Uh, what would be some of the places or websites you would go to if anyone wants to volunteer? Where would you search? CNN, BBC? Right, right. Google News. Google News search, definitely. Um, anyone else? Does anyone use Twitter? To uh, what would you do on Twitter? How would you use Twitter as a tool? A search in the Twitter box, right? Right. So um, I actually did try that, and let's do a quick, just a quick um, experiment. I set up a tweet deck. Um, and that's, this is what journalists do today. Like if you go to a newsroom uh, in some places like Huffington Post or BuzzFeed, and I have classmates from CUNY Journalism School who took a job as an editor. This is what they do, 20, like 12 hours a day, trying to scoop everyone else. They're not hitting the ground. They might be called making phone calls, but they're not um, doing... The, the way they do investigative journalism is just creating two columns and staring at it, and they might have some sources, go-to sources, where they can follow up on the story and get the insights. Um, but a lot of what today's journalism is about is this manual scanning of, of, of Twitter search results. 
Um, so this is TweetDex version. When the uh, manhunt ha happened, I typed in suspects, it was just out of control. It just completely crashed. So that was not a good way to do it. <laughs> um, so just to give you a visual you know, understand, uh, sense of what journalism do in their newsrooms right now. Uh, I believe that computers can do this much more efficiently, save the work of filtering uh, all the noisy tweets and deriving the most relevant, interesting tweets so that the journalist can spend, instead of 12 hours, can spend maybe one or two hours scanning TweetDeck uh, and then spending 10 hours actually writing stories, analyzing and following the sources, finding insights they can share with the public. Um, so we know that computers count really fast. Um, but if you break down a tree, if you really break it down to the bare bones, the pieces of what's in that 140 characters, there's really only a few different types of information or types of format of, of the words in the tweet. It could be just language, you know, human language, punctuation, uh, single words, and you can break them out into individual words. So the technique in natural language processing is tokenizing. Uh, when I was learning from Professor Marty Hurst about tokenizing, I thought it sounds a lot like the subway tokens I used to put when I was a kid going to Stuyvesant. I have tokenizing. But what they mean is just taking a string of words and a sentence or paragraphs and dividing it into individual single words. Uh, unigrams, a single word, bigrams, two words, trigrams, three words. Uh, so there's words in a tweet. There's also add user mentions. So when you put an add symbol, that's like pointing to a user. That's just a shorthand for this user. It's a link to that user. There could be hashtags. So that's another type of information in the tweet. And there's URLs or links in, inside a tweet. So if we know that, if that's the insight we have, we know you, uh, in a tweet, those are all the different components, possible components that can go into the tweet. The next insight, or the next actual technique, if I was the human algorithm for Keeper, this is what I would do next. The next insight is, I take 100 tweets, and that's 114,000 uh, characters. So that's individual characters, 14,000 characters. So if you were the human doing this, you just you know, read 100 tweets. That's all you're doing. And what you do is you pause it, meaning you make it into individual words. So you're creating almost like a data table. One table is the words, the second column is how many times they happen. Uh, not just the words, but also the links, the, the mentions, the users, the, uh, the hashtags. And then what Keeper is doing is it's actually presenting to the journalists a visualization, some kind of interface. Um, Right now, the interface is just a list of tweets. It could be, if you want to imagine, uh, the relationships between who's tweeting to who, uh, you know, how, how much communication is going on between users, uh, where does the tweet come from, who's retweeting what tweet. So there's different types of uh, visuals you can show the user. And then the next thing is you allow the user to zoom in and zoom out of, of the view, of the display. So you could, uh, you know, say Obamacare, and then you can zoom into you know, what Republicans think about Obamacare and zoom into that, and then you can zoom back out. And finally, what the algorithm or the software tool could, should allow the journalists to do is they should be able to archive it, meaning save that tweet. Um, save that tweet, keep the user as a list, into a list. Um, so being able to archive and organize the most relevant, meaningful tweets 
because we know Twitter has a policy of somehow not making public uh, the tweets. The, some of the older tweets vanish. You can get to it, but you can't search for it. Twitter is not very good about making allowing older uh, tweets to be searchable. And we also know if you don't archive it, the users themselves can delete the tweet. So then that's another whole different policy or different contention about what happens to delete the tweets. Should we keep an archive of it? Should we still talk about it, or should we not? That's a separate, uh, more editorial question. So that's the algorithm. That's what Keeper is doing. It's letting you zoom in, zoom out, and archive. Um, Professor Marty Hurst is teaching that class again, and this is a visual from her. And she's saying that, you know, when you think of language, there's structure, there's sequence of the words, uh, there's dimensionality, there's meaning. Um, and then NLP algorithms can let you achieve some of these benefits. The applications could be sentiment analysis, summarization, topic classification, dialogue, information ex extraction, uh, spelling suggestion. And each one of these disciplines has m much, a lot of research going on. There's lots of conferences and um, uh, you know, uh, researchers, entire departments focus on any one of these applications. But um, you know that's some of the techniques I'm using also to uh, to break out 140 characters and then combining those tweets and then trying to bubble up the meaningfulness out of it and trying to understand the the topics, the users, as well as the links behind it. So let's do another quick um, uh, demo of. Um, so if you were to try to understand or know what Obamacare, uh, the latest updates on Obamacare and what's happening around that issue, what you would do is you go to Keeper and then right now what you would do is you type in Obamacare. And this is the results you would get. So the algorithm is doing exactly what I explained. It's pulling 100 tweets and parsing all the words in that tweet in those tweets and summarizing it. Um, and the way I arrange them now, this is the latest design layout. <laughs> Let me see. Obamacare is the law of the land, so what slavery at the time? And that's what Rush Limbo is saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't make the news. I just searched it. <laughs> um, and also, Twitter tends to have the funniest things <laughs> like mentioned a lot, too. Um, so the layout, according to my arrangement right now at this day, is I'm showing the actual um, links and expanding it, showing you the actual articles on the left column. So these are the mainstream publications, the you know, the the actual um, most talked about links that's already published. The second column is actually is just the tweets. So the top are the most retweeted ones, the top three, and then below it is the real time. Incoming tweets like 556, uh, you know, these real time tweets. And out of this 100 real time and popular tweets, there's some pattern emerging of the topics, the users, and the links. So the links I expanded, the topics I put in the top, and on the right side are the, um, in, in civic media, they would call, call them either the sources of information or the amplifiers. Either way, they might be having a message and people are always saying you know, retweeting this person or via this person. 
So their opinions or their tweets are being shared a lot. They're, amplif- they're being amplified, and they are amplifiers themselves because people are listening to them and pushing their messages out. And this is the candidate, the list of candidates uh, of. of possible sources that you might put into the Twitter list or into this keep following updates from this set of people. Um, So for example, if I want to know what speaker Boner is um, saying, I just tap on this and he does another search that filters again Twitter for all the tweets about what he's saying and the reaction, any message that has an ad mention to this user. And you can do this, infant, you know, continue on and on and on. So, WallKeeper is making accessible to journalists and also to the public. This is open source and very much always available. Is that you can quickly summarize the latest, not just the published articles, but the latest conversations on the Twitter sphere. And if we want to take a more social science perspective, I would say, um, you know, Jürgen Habermas will be very proud of what's happening right now on Twitter and the conversations going on. So, um, so that's the live demo, and you can use it for any other topic if you guys are interested in using it in that way. And I'm just going to wrap up uh, with some final points. Uh, humans are very good at much better than computers, infinitely better at making value judgments and telling stories. Uh, this is the general like framework of how the media industry, how news is being created. Some event happens. There's lots of tweets about it. Even the Arab Springs, you know, there was a lot of tweet before um, before the mainstream media picked up the stories. Um, and then there's amplifiers who we saw on the right column, people who are getting the, the tweets and the information uh, rebroadcasted and retweeted and amplified. But in this middle section is the reporter. And the journalists, their job is to add context and create a narrative of the story. And that's critical because if they want to get the mainstream broadcast media uh, to be correct, to be not just fast, not always be the first one to scoop and be the uh, you know, first to tell the story, but to, they have to get it right. The key is getting it right and then getting it first, not get it first and see what happens. Um, so Keeper would help try to identify the amplifiers, identify the sources, summarize those tweets, and then the journalists are in a much better place to do the legwork, the manual vetting of the sources and the credibility. Keeper does not promise to be able to vet the accuracy of any tweet. So the secret source, just to summarize, the algorithm is extracting topics out of a whole mass, like a big string of words, of 100 tweets. Um, It's extracting the media, meaning extracting the images, the videos, so if you have eyewitness accounts and they upload videos or media, Keeper will be able to surface those media files. It expands the links and shows the articles as visual, um, visual displays of the you know, visual, of the title, of the summary. And that's much easier to keep track of than if you were to read 100 tweets yourself and see this funny-looking uh, URL and you don't know, you keep seeing that URL, but it doesn't mean anything to you. 
Um, it tries to do conversation analysis only at the first level of seeing who's being ad mentioned the most. So it extracts out of all those strings the ad most frequent ad mentions. Um, and I have like uh, major sources and minor sources. The major sources are the ones that's mentioned the most, the highest resonance, but those are my, probably not the most interesting ones because everyone else sees those. The minor sources are the ones that the journalists will have to dig into and do the legwork to investigate. And um, if discovers the sources, and any change in velocity, as I was talking about earlier, any change in number of followers ramping up very fast or retweets ramping up very fast, you would be able to know who those people are and say those are very likely candidates that you want to pay attention to, whether they're eyewitnesses or in, insightful people or official sources. Um, and then eventually, source verification. Keeper can at most probably do geolocated tags. Um, I remember Taylor Dobbs, one of the person covering the, the uh, Watertown manhunt, he turned on geo, uh, geocoding. He, every tweet he broadcast, they had the location of where he was. And so that gives him more trustworthy because he was on the scene. Um, and then you can also, we haven't, Keeper doesn't incorporate any of these, this particular feature yet. You can look at the other social media profiles. So Keeper does bring you the, the Twitter profile of the description they put into their Twitter, Twitter profile, but you will be suggested that you go to all the other social media profiles to continue vetting and doing those, those kind of searches on that source. Um, so all this is just by virtue of being able to count how many times those words get mentioned, those entities, those tokens get mentioned. And this is the article I mentioned earlier uh, by John Kleinberg about how if you see a burst in activity, that's a really strong signal that your algorithm, your, your computational method, your, your, uh, you should be able to find those people because they have bursty activity. Um, and as I'm trying to commercialize it and build a product, um, I set up a company just recently, starting in, uh, in September. The hardest things actually, for me at least, it's, it's not expensive. It's, I have the server running, it's like $10 a month. The hardest thing is actually getting a mailing address. I, I'm actually getting like a mailbox in Manhattan and have to pay 100 bucks a month just to set up a mailbox so I can file the papers with the New York State and then get the banks to send me bank statements in that mailbox. That's the only expense I have. <laughs> um, but I'm finding that when I pitch it to journalists, to newsrooms like uh, Bloomberg or NBC or to uh, New York Times, what they want is, they're, they're thinking on much less technical levels, they're thinking on practical application levels. They say, um, you know, it's great that you're able to uh, find, discover sources. Can you actually curate it for me? Can you just create like different lists of sources for each story and give me the official list of official authorities? Give me the official list of eyewitnesses as soon as possible. And then if you can do that, then I can use it right away. But in order to do that, I, I probably need some manual help. I need some uh, uh, seasoned journalist to help me create manually using the tool, this separate list categories of sources. They want passive monitoring and alerts. So just like any system, it's better to have agent, software agents sending alerts as opposed to keep on searching repeatedly. Uh, they want to save an archive, so you might, it's easy to underestimate how important it is for them to save these structured tweets or those screenshots or those um, uh, tweet, tweets that have been deleted because that, that's what they care about a lot. And that feature itself might entice them to pay for the app beyond the other nice-to-haves for them. 
Uh, they want visualizations, not just a list of tweets. They want visual statistics and graphs and, and trends and, ma and maps of who's tweeting what, the relationship graphs. And they also want the interface to have parity with TweetDeck, kind of the streaming nature, this ease of use, which I need to work on as well. If you ask an everyday person what they want, not even the journalists, but just the general public, they actually want something very simple. They just want the story. They, want, they haven't been tuning in to Obamacare. They want half a paragraph of summary of what is the latest developments in the facts. Just tell me that much. And then if there's questions they want to ask, they'll dig in themselves. Um, and they just want the reliable, vetted, verified sources. They want a list of the official Twitter accounts. Not the media, not the eyewitnesses. They, they want the official uh, verified sources. Um, so this is, again, my own thoughts. Uh, since we're in the writing program, I thought I'll share my own kind of writing. On, I believe social media is really a good thing because uh, mass media homogenizes and social media democratizes. Uh, it counters the cultural industry's profit-maximizing tendencies, uh, thereby unwinding the merchant accrual, uh, hegemonic grip on emerging and fleeting spectacles, that perpetuate our postmodern economy's natural propensity to fabricate somatic hyperreality. <laughs> I'm not a big sports fan, so I would say that's ESPN. <laughs> um, so that's complete opinion. There's no facts there. <laughs> um, I just want to point out some resources. This is a Tumblr site called Verification Junkie, and they've been uh, keeping up with all the other tools in addition to myself. Josh Stern. Uh, uh, Stearns keeps a uh, list on this Tumblr site, and there's um, other sites out there. I'm rolling out a beta program, so having newsrooms sign up for it. Um, and basically, I need to um, take the product and pitch it to uh, at journalism industry events. So having a company, a product, a startup, I need to get in front of the end users. So I'm going to the Online Journalist Association's uh, annual event in Atlanta in next month to talk about my product. Uh, and they're definitely looking for news orgs that's doing breaking news very well and giving out uh, recognition for those people who can do it very well. And it's also open source, so I'm uh, welcoming contributions and uh, help with writing the code. It's on GitHub. Um, and these are some other resources. BBC has some outlines of what they do. Story4 has some other sources. Um, and then this info, uh, InfoCam is a uh, tool that lets you verify if the photos are realistic. They haven't been manipulated. Um, so that's pretty much it. Yeah. Thank you so much. And if you have questions, I have mooncakes, so if you ask questions, I'll give you a mooncake. <laughs> and happy May-Autumn Festival. So, keep those questions coming. Um, so we can open it up. Um, are, are you going to use the computer? Anymore? Not really. Okay, so yeah, let's turn that off. So okay, great. Um, uh, um, hopefully, you really won't need to use it because so one one quick okay. question I had just to start things off is um, you you talked about bringing this to uh, uh, creating a company out of this and going right. commercial with this sure um, if I was a newsroom, what would be my 
what, what would be the pitch as to why I should pay for this as opposed to just using what's already there or going on GitHub, taking this software right. and seeing how I could play around with it to, to make it more applicable to my newsroom? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I intentionally keep it open source because the mission of the company is really to um, get these tools in the hands of journalists, no matter whether they're freelance or in a big company, uh, big media outlet. And you know they could run it on their own server. That's a, also a positive outcome. But I'm thinking of you know there's so many. Uh, not just journalists, but news junkies and people who want to keep up to date. And the business model is really just to charge a minimal fee, something that sustains the operation, so that they can pay even $10 a month and uh, keep have their own version. So I would say it's closest to WordPress right. in the way that WordPress keeps updating the tools and there's an open source community. And then you know the benefit of and you can install your own, but you can also have it hosted and not have the headache of upgrading it yourself and keeping up with the latest features. Right. And, and one other question, um, unless someone is very eager to jump in, is um, my, my reaction, and, and I meant to ask this uh, when we worked together back in April, right. is um, 100 tweets is obviously more than a human being could right. process in a second's amount of time. But even just when we were looking at your tweet deck stream of right. Obamacare, 100 tweets is, is nothing. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that could be um, half a second or, or a, a millisecond if it's a huge event. So right. how did you come up with that number, and is there any risk of, um, with that size number of not being able to correctly identify what's going on? So I, the reason I limited to 100 tweets in the beginning was mainly because Twitter's API was just 100 tweets is the first kind of package of information they sent. Um, another reason from a technical point of view is I wanted to keep it real time and process very fast. So all the counting and the, the algorithm has to run in a way so that it makes a round trip and the user sees it as soon as possible. Um, I think it could probably go up to 500,000 and that's not so much um, a technical difficulty but just a matter of changing that number the code in the code. Um, but if it was too much, the only concern is that it's no longer real time. It has to be like you send the search in and you have to wait for the results to come right. back. Um, but for the time being, 100 seems to be okay. And what the user would end up having to do is to click on one of the subtopics. So start to start drilling down. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so that's the, uh, the interface right now. But it's, almost, it's definitely up, um, up to change. It's going to be changed and iterated upon. All right, so, so I have two new pies in the bank. Wow. <laughs> there you go. And if you, could, um, if you could identify yourself, just because we are recording this, so we can have it for the very I'm Eric Kling. Okay. Um, I had a question about your sources and amplifiers section. Sure. Inside. So in this case, you used the um, example of John Boner in this right. thing. And you know, in, in this example, from what I saw there, he didn't look like he was so much a source as a sync. It looked like the messages were, you know, messages targeted to him, to his Twitter account. Right. And I was wondering if that difference was something that you had been thinking about, whether you cared about it, whether you had some idea of how to separate, you know, messages being sent to someone as opposed to messages that were, you know, coming from that person's... Yeah. I think you bring up a really good point because the algorithm, what it's doing is just counting the number of times that at user thing... Um, because uh, so uh, he's definitely not necessarily a source, but he may be even a, be a topic. Because in the topic on the top, he was also appearing as a uh, subtopic to 
click on. Um, what I notice is that since Obamacare is kind of an ongoing public policy debate, it's not necessarily breaking news. Um, although it's an issue that should, you know, be talked about, and, and, and you know, the public has to be informed about. Maybe not to the second or to the minute updates. Maybe that's a more drawn-out process. But for breaking news situations, the uh, the users that get surfaced almost inevitably is those uh, are those sources or those um, uh, people who are uploading images and, and uh, files and, and links. So I, I think the kind of the um, Short answer is, I hope the journalists will be able to differentiate so the algorithm does less, but also the algorithm can use a lot of more improvements as well. Great. Yeah, I think one of um, the, the one of the approaches to summarizing a longer term story and keeping track of it is um, for my software to keep a database, a record, a data store of all these different searches, and maybe search every five minutes or ten minutes, and then do like a meta aggregation of those results, and then that visual. Uh, display it's almost like a Google News for that topic could be a much more um, accurate portrayal of that story as it stands at this current moment because I'm able to track it longitudinally as opposed to a single slice. So just to make sure I understand, so you mean something like taking the um, the the most recent hundred searches for Obamacare on Keeper yep. and then taking that and synthesizing that into something. Uh, yeah, doing five-minute uh, search results and then taking maybe, if it's five minutes each, taking two days' worth and then anal analyzing that set again. That's probably a much more robust approach for analyzing those stories. Too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm Ian Condry. I'm a professor here at the Paradigm Studies. Okay. Uh, I'm very interested in your comparison of what algorithms do well and what humans do well. Sure. I guess I'm curious to hear a little more about how to think about combining both sides of that that process. That I, I think you're quite right. That you know, how do you get an algorithm to do what it does best, but then how do you make space for the humans to come in and do what they do best? And 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 ideally back and forth. I mean, it seems like right now it's the algorithm does something, and then the humans take over. Have you thought about ways to integrate the humans back into the algorithm so there's more of a recursive process? And, or just how have you thought about how to combine what data can do and what humans can do? Uh, definitely. I, um, when I watch users use it, uh, especially journalists, um, they actually sometimes don't know where to begin. Um, they don't know the topics areas. So, if you're uh, for the journalists when they're writing the story, the terminology is they don't know what angle to write the story in. So it kind of works backwards of how they want to tell the story about that topic or that issue, and then they have to do the research. But it's a kind of a dialectical process. They have to know what the topics are in order to pick a topic and then research that topic, uh, and 
Keeper does um, extract some of those topics, but it's up to them also to make a value judgment on which angle to follow through on to outline the story and then go to the sources to find the sources that can um, add to the to the angle of the story. Um, so, uh, you know, I think in the earlier stages of, um, uh, you know, let's say the editor assigns a story, the reporter still has to get approval for that specific narrative that they might compose, and Keeper can help in that, t- teasing out that angle. So, just as a follow-up, um, uh, a use case would be that uh, a, a journalist is uh, working with your interface and uh, is, uh, wants to write a story related to some of the Twitter feed that he has been able to find process on Keeper. So how does that journalist proceed? What steps do, uh, does a journalist then try to contact individuals who tweeted and then say, I'm a journalist for this news and world report, and I'm writing on the story, and you tweeted this. Would you talk with me? Is that how it works? Um, I, I think, um, since I, based on my uh, classes at journalism school, and also watching the Neiman Fellows from last year follow the Boston bombing uh, aftermaths, journalists are really uh, incredible at getting the sources to talk to them. They are very, in a way, aggressive and st- try to get through all the barriers and step over the... the um, uh, so, for example, one of the, the journalists at the Neiman Fellow, uh, as they're covering that event, what they would do is they actually go to the hospital and try to talk to the relatives of the injured people. Um, so by all means, any means possible to get um, so to the source. So, uh, I didn't identify. I'm Jim Carrigan. Yeah. Uh, so, that's where some of the, uh, the geo-information in the Twitter says, go here. This right. is, uh, there's a lot coming from this particular uh, geographical location. If you just go on site, there are going to be people there. So that's a, that's a resource. Another type of resource would be, here's an individual who has, uh, uh, like Seth, made lots and lots of uh, tweets and is being followed, so you should go talk to that individual. So there, one is a, a locational and another mm-hmm. an individual. What are some of the other uh, yes. ways in which this person will use this? Um, so the media is a, also another aspect. Just the fact that the, uh, the source is uploading media, then uh, you know, Keeper will lead them to those people who are the source of that picture. Just like um, in the plane that emergency landed in the Hudson, the person who took the picture is an indicator that person's a, a really good source. Um, having other people kind of co-reference, so I found uh, Taylor Dobbs because Seth was mentioning him in his tweets saying there's another person next to me and he's taking pictures he's in the backseat of my car <laughs> so just reading the tweets really carefully to see co-activity uh, in the same location would indicate that might be a potential source as well yeah. yes uh, so you're saying that the journalist would need the, or Jesse Sell for Jesse okay. uh, you're saying the journalist would need to have the subject to, to really research the subject so um, is there kind of a 
does it only work as, as a searching tool, or does a journalist that just pops onto the site for can they find out topics that are blowing up right at that second? Um, does it track at all, or is it only for researching a topic and finding out where yeah, great question. So, I, I, when I'm designing the tool, I don't want the um, journalist or anyone to go to the site and just be presented with search box, kind of like a Google, what do you want to search for? I do want to have a kind of curated like, um, browse experience to browse what's the top um, news stories. And the way I'm seeding it is actually what I'm doing is I'm giving it, uh, when you load the page, I'm doing a search for four Twitter accounts kind of four of my sources, and the four Twitter accounts are CNN's breaking news story, NBC has a breaking news uh, Twitter account, uh, and the BBC breaking story, um, news account, as well as the AP breaking news account. So what you see on the homepage is just a list of the most mentioned topics um, uh, that those four accounts have been generating and summarizing that list. So that's why that. So I really liked. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, Sasha Kasemzachak, oh, uh, assistant professor of civic media. Um, I really like the slide where you break down uh, some of the key tasks that journalists really, uh, really need, right? And I wonder if, in your design process, um, if you either do or have thought about doing uh, really concretely uh, collaborative design workshops, where you would actually work with journalists. Uh, uh, to sort of walk through different possible design features that they would need. So, you know, one approach is just from your observation from journalism school and from Neiman Fellows. Another is uh, sort of a more ethnographic approach where you hang out in newsrooms and look at the tasks people do. And another would be a sort of more collaborative design workshop approach. We'd gather people to brainstorm with you uh, different types of features they want to see next. Um, and I wonder if you use that type of approach. So I was very fortunate because um, the Online News Association, um, they, got, they convened a bunch of journalists and technologists um, at the Boston Globe two weeks ago, and they had just exactly that user-centered design session uh, trying to brainstorm features. And some of the ideas that they came out of that, that um, uh, session was very much in line with what some of the observations and conclusions I've been making. Um, on the other hand, for my design process and my just product um, industry experience, I feel like there's nothing better than having an alpha test of the real live data product um, in the hands of a journalist to tell if it's working for them or not. Um, so last year when I was building Keeper, I put in an alert, um, an alert feature where you can say, okay, this is the search results. Uh, for this search term, please just send me an email alert anytime there's something meaningful that needs to be updated and email me. Nobody signed up. Maybe one person signed up. And I think that's not a sign that they don't want to use the feature, even though it does work. And uh, or It's a sign they don't want to give maybe their emails, their private emails, to a site that's unknown. So there's many different variables, as you can see, of what's, not, what's the barrier to adoption. Um, but I'm a firm believer that you can do a lot of ethnography, a lot of participatory design, but at the end of the day, the truest data point is that you actually build a very um, uh, like crude version of that feature and give it to the end user and see if they actually use it on a regular basis. Question is very simple. I'm Tom Chow from Freud Language in the Literature. Does Keeper 
take foreign languages like Chinese? And what kind of data sources do they come from? So I found that using, uh, people always ask me, why do I only focus on Twitter? Well, obviously, breaking news Twitter is the best source. Um, the, my um, concern with any other language or even any other country is that the participation, the actual posting of content is not very vibrant for those uh, languages and countries. And so it's the they say garbage in, garbage out. If there's not much content being posted onto Twitter, it won't be useful. But it's agnostic, just like Twitter is agnostic to the language of the actual content. You'll search the, the different languages as well. Uh, yeah. Hey, Mark. Um, great to hear your talk. Um, I'm Rodrigo Davis from the Center of Civic Media. Um, I know this is slightly outside the scope of Keeper, but given your experience, um, what do you think of the much maligned field of sentiment analysis? Yeah kind of where we're at at that point. And did you actually, in any of your user research, see demand from journalists for that kind of work? This is completely based on personal um, uh, perception again. Um, I think sentiment analysis, as far as I know, the technology is really... Um, it's, act, it's not yet um, uh, foolproof yet. And... Um, also, it's very contextual to the story itself, whether it's a positive or negative. Uh, so Obamacare to the uh, Carl Bobes, it could be very negative if someone says, you know, it's going to pass or not pass. Um, so um, I feel like uh, the reason I didn't go anywhere close to using to getting Keeper to do sentiment analysis, it's very high processing power and slow, but with very little uh, value. Um, so... I think for for breaking news stories, um, I haven't seen any good applications or good products around that. Yeah. Uh, which search engine are you using on the back end for this to index and power all this? Um, so the way it's built right now, it um, does a API call to Twitter search engine. And the results that come back is the um, Twitter results. And the way I process the results, all I'm doing is doing a, uh, a frequency count of the terms and indexing it into the words and the, the frequency in the hash table. Yeah, it's just a very raw algorithm which you can see in the source code. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I really feel the the richest area. Uh, some companies have been doing this, like Social Flow, uh, a lot of marketing software, um, uh, social media monitoring software have been doing this, and election campaigns have been using uh, social media analysis software. Um, I think the promising area is the network analysis, the graph, and visualizing the graph of who is saying what to who when. Just like when you saw the word boat, I want to know who said the word boat, who else said the word boat, and retweeted it, and, and when did they say it, and you know that visualization of how the word boat became a meme or a, a high-mentioned uh, uh, word. And I think, back to Seth's question, what would journalism um, organizations pay for? If I was able to cre create a very accurate visual graph of the conversation and the social relationships and let them zoom in and zoom out, um, they would be able to isolate the story and the content of those conversations very quickly 
Um, so, you know, I, I think that's the most promising area, too. Yep. Hi, my name is Chelsea. I'm in CMS also. Um, to build off of that, I'm curious, you know, it sounds like you've designed this specifically for journalists. Um, but I'm curious what other, it sounds like there are potential other applications and other people who might also be interested in this. Have you thought about what other kinds of end users might uh, want to take advantage of it in the future? Uh, since I live in New York and there's a thriving financial community, I always ask people to put their favorite stock symbol into it and see what comes up when they search for the stock symbol to see what rumors are spreading and so on. Um, so there's a startup in New York City called Data Miner, and they do pretty much the same thing, probably more sophisticated interface and algorithms, and they sell, it to the, they sell their product to the hedge funds. Um, so they do probably generate these Twitter lists of sources, and they have humans monitoring it, and when there's a breaking news event or thing, um, let's say Bernanke announces there's no, um, you know, the, uh, there's no change in policy, uh, they would try to you know, see what the actual um, response to that or what the social media buzz is and send that summary to the hedge funds. And they charge a lot of money and they're well-funded. Um, so there's many applications for data mining the exhaust fumes of social media. That's very valuable. But um, the reason I want to help journalists is because I feel like there's a, they need to have a level playing field. They need to start moving in this kind of automation and information extraction. Um, if they don't do it now, they'll be behind the news, whereas they should be actually at the same pace and sometimes deriving intelligence that the other entities like the, uh, you know, let's say the government or the marketing front, marketing companies, PR companies that's trying to manipulate the public perceptions. So I, I do, I'm building Keeper mostly to um, uh, level the playing field. Um, and that's why I, in, I'm so in, uh, completely zo- zoomed in and focused on journalism. Tia? Uh, yeah, my question is a little bit of a riff on Ian's and Rodrigo's. It's, it's a meta question. So, um, you know, if we're in this sort of moment of the hopes of big data and the power of algorithms. Um, I was, of course, I, I, I'm an ethnographer, so I love that you had this slide that still, you know, it says, you know, interpretation is the work that humans are doing. I'm just wondering, do you find yourself having to navigate and mediate people's hopes and expectations about this stuff in newsrooms or other locales where in the end you're still going to need a reporter to go out and do that hard work that we've talked about. So I'm just curious uh, on the ground how you're navigating this kind of cultural enthusiasm for these techniques against the real role of human interpretation. You mean the enthusiasm of newsrooms that they might not need to pay reporters? And of every, I mean, not just newsrooms, but in general. Right. I mean, the, it happens in game companies. All kinds of folks are right, right. hopeful about what these techniques can do. I think the best summary when I applied to Neiman and I you know, had the same kind of question, uh, the Neiman Foundation staff was asking, is this artificial intelligence? Is it going to replace the reporters and write the stories themselves, <laughs> itself, with the algorithm? And I said, no, it's really intelligence augmentation. Uh, it's AI, not IA. Um, it's uh, intelligence augmentation, IA. Um, so what the computer can do really well is just count and compute and, and keep a data st- storage. Um, but, you know, I, I always am in the camp of the uh, humanistic values that um, no matter how smart the algorithm is, it's still doing statistics and pattern recognition, and it, it can't really make an um, interpretation as well uh, of the meaningfulness of the values. Um, 
that's why I feel like um, all my work with journalism is to say, um, as a journalist, you still have a very um, uh, important role in making the news and broadcasting the news. Um, you have the, at least for now, you have the credibility as a mainstream news source that's authoritative, at least in this day and age. Um, you want to maintain that, and if you tell a very good story based on all the research you have done, then you can maintain your brand and actually have it take off as the best you know, place to read a good story and read an accurate portrayal in a very fast manner. Uh, real, almost real-time manner of the story. So there's some organizations, uh, like I would say the Atlantic suite of companies, the Quartz and Atlantic Wire, that's doing that, and they've been very good at that. So I hope just to elevate the expectation of quality from all the news sources out there. I, I have um, uh, one more question that isn't directly about Keeper, but um, about the, uh, you know, one thing we're talking a lot about is content and content producers and, and who the content producers are. And we've been focusing mainly on whether um, the professional content producers, what their role is going to be. Um, but Twitter and Facebook and social, all social media um, are also content producers. Uh, and um, I think it, it seems like with tools such as yours um, that we are just sort of scratching the surface for the ways in which that content can be monetized. Do you think there will ever be a tension there um, uh, and people will in, in some way say, you know what, I'm not going to use this anymore because I don't like the fact that the content I'm producing is a very small part of you know, these billion-dollar revenue streams. Right. Uh, well, it, it's from a more kind of just the whole ecosystem of social media, um, my perspective is that, you know, having worked for maybe more than a decade, is that companies will come and go, um, but the behavior will persist, and the content will be posted onto those networks. Um, and whether, you know, the whether the company is a public company or it emphasizes monetization and you know uses the content in a way that the producers of the content didn't intend to, um, there'll be always new um, products and new companies and new you know innovative ways to incentivize these kind of behaviors to fill its place. Um, so there's, I think, uh, uh, plenty of opportunity. You look at Instagram, uh, it didn't exist, but now it's very big, even for news and journalism. And why are they posting the photo to, to Instagram as opposed to now to tweet, tweet pick and Twitter? Um, as, uh, I think the algorithm should be, you know, the, the compu computational methods should really just follow where the activities are happening and you know, persist because just empowering individuals to broadcast themselves it, that's um, that kind of behavior that kind of incentive will always um, always exist um, just I, I remember when I was at Berkeley we read the work of Irving Gottman and you know if any kind of social scientist can explain why people are posting all this nonsense onto social media. His theories were, were explain how people want to present themselves and create a public image uh, of their identity that's outside of, you know, outside of the private sphere. Um, and human interactions are mediated by these gestures of, you know, wanting to 
be perceived in this kind of drama. Um, and, and so there's a, there'll always be a place um, where content gets um, uploaded or posted and streamed. And, you know, we all should be respectful of the, of the intent of the person who's producing it. So I'm sure the companies are very careful not to violate those expectations. And, and, and the ad, advertising companies also will be very careful, um, try their best to not violate the, the expectations and the, rules, the terms of service. Make it seem like they're violating it. Right, right. And they'll have to step back. And right. The only entity that right now is being very irresponsible is the government. Right, right. <laughs> and not disclosing it. it and, and do you see any tension between um, the professional content producers and the mass content producers? Uh, one question I got a lot sure. after the bombing was, well, who was paying for you? Who was paying for that? Um, and obviously no one was. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, and, so, and, and when I asked other journalists why they weren't doing what I was doing on the scene because I was only in a privileged position for a very short period of time. Um, I, you know, I didn't have some magic mojo there. Uh, the answer I got back a lot was, well, that's not my job. My job is to post onto the New York Times or you know, do a live report on, on NPR. Um, uh, is, is that relationship something that you see either in your, your work with journalists or in the way that journalists are reacting to something like Keeper? As I work more closely with journalists and try to um, see the trend, um, I almost see that professional journalism is not necessarily, definitely not a very lucrative job, but it's not even, really? uh, <laughs> not even, a, not even a, a sustaining job, not even doesn't pay the bills. Um, it's becoming more like a like a artist, like a you know like a novelist. You don't know how you'll turn out. You two can close your, you three can close your ears. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, they can also innovate with the whole um, big data movement, and you know not just use the term the words and the buzzwords. But they can also take the tools and use it to their own advantage. And if they not only compete against other news outlets, but compete against uh, you know, uh, marketing companies, compete against uh, official investigative searches, and they're able to get the story faster and, and more accurate than the sources themselves, then that's really value there. And so you you found um, I just, okay uh, you found at the at the Knight Foundation that the journalists there viewed journalism as um, sort of an artisan thing they were doing and not something that could support. Themselves. Well, not the Knight Foundation, but just in general in New York City, the media industry itself. Just they're, they're having to add other skills or other jobs or other work too. And are you talking about people who are, have staff jobs or, or primarily freelancers? Or uh, I, I, I do see there's kind of like a top tier, like the A-list of journalists who build their brand and they've done very well and they can sustain and jump to other organizations. But I, uh, my, my sense is the uh, less recognized brands, the staff writers, they are struggling and they need to either have um, you know, jump on the bandwagon of uh, a more up-and-coming uh, news organization, or even completely jump out of journalism into more like content uh, marketing. Right. Stuff like that. All right. That's yeah. Um, so 
Just identify yourself. Oh, sorry. I'm Denise Chang. I'm with Comparative Media Studies. I was also in the CUNY J School program that you were in right after you. Um, but so basically, um, so I used to work in journalism as well, more from like the grassroots local journalism aspect, and also meeting with a lot of different people from like community radio, public radio, bigger organizations like the New York media scene. Um, and I think that one, like the sense that I get from the questions in here is that we're looking at Keeper as like a re placement of work, right? And I used to work in citizen journalism, I should say. And I think that from, at least from what I've seen of the, of the industry um, and into like radio and other places, is actually that people are so tied to their computer that they want to get out there, but they don't have the time. It's like what Hong was saying of like sitting 12 hours, you're, you're strapped to your computer. You're not there and thinking, well, at least I don't have to go out there and like talk to people because I'm scared of them. It's like, I would rather be doing that, but it's a scalability issue. It's like looking through tweets, you have a whole lot of garbage, but you also are getting information so rapidly versus if you just go out there and you spend your time and effort, that doesn't scale as well. So I think that maybe in looking at all of this, it's not like how do you like take this like algorithm and then create content. Um, it's more like because this exists, uh, suddenly, um, journalist capacity is increased to actually go out there and do what they can do well, which is talk to people. Yeah, uh, was anyone disagreeing with that idea? I don't know, it seems like, I mean, it's like you're asking about like content generation, um, and then as well as like, uh, just just how um, data kind of replaces, I think people, like, and, uh, like I guess I felt that way from the questions that I was hearing. Okay. Um, yes, Sasha. Yeah, I, I don't know how you let him get away so easily. I know. I, think I knew someone else would pick up. Uh, so, um, I so, can be the, the polite. <laughs> so how, how did you get from, um, it looked like it was a quote from your thesis. I can't quote it, but it was about the uh, reproduction of the society of spectacle and the extraction of the commodification, of the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, which was basically about you know this massive cultural industrial system that extracts uh, cultural uh, labor from people and, and commodifies it and then produces value out of it, which they don't get to see, to um, I think companies are doing the best they can to respect the users, and it's only the government um, that's disrespecting people through NSA. I mean, say a little bit more about that. I don't think you really meant to say that the companies are doing just fine. Right? Yeah. Well, the quote it was really in reference to bef the age before social media. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of conceived as I was working on YouTube and building out YouTube as an alternative to kind of like the MTVs of the world that would make a uh, um, be the gatekeeper to what is the cool thing. Um, so we could say social media does have this kind of de democratizing effect of maybe not the most talented, but at least uh, you know the people get to decide. Uh, what, what is the most, uh, you know, what, what gets out there as being... Well, yeah, it opens up voice, but the question about commodification. So the new merchants of cool uh, use free labor uh, from user-generated exactly. content and then extract and data mine and surveil and resell that information to other companies that sell it to others. Uh, so I think it's, it's kind of a thin gloss to say... Uh, it's only the state that's disrespecting users, right? I mean, YouTube is notorious for, uh, literally in its terms, doesn't allow uh, the content creators that are making 
that are actually making money to even talk to each other about how much money they're getting paid you know, based on the views. So it's a little, right? For sure. Merchants of Cool are al algorithmically extracting yes. uh, and mining their, their, right. their audience slash producers. Yeah, I, I'm not, um, basically when I say the um, social media platforms, that they're not necessarily they're not necessarily bad, but they're not necessarily good for us. But if they become too bad, then someone else will um, take their place. And of course, they can, you know, kind of. Um, there's still the financing of the venture capitalist community. Uh, you know, Anil Dash talks about uh, you upload all your wedding photos to the startup, and when the startup gets acquired, your wedding photos, you have two months to download it, or else they vanish. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily uh, all good and happy with social media now being in place and the organizations uh, like Facebook and YouTube and Google. Um, but uh, I, I feel like, you know, when companies try to um, create a more fair and, and equitable um, system of, uh, you know, uh, paying the compensating the content producers, um, it is very difficult to set up this whole system, this whole infra infrastructure and the incentive system. And there's lots of copyright and legal um, um, infrastructural issues that are still um, not there yet. Um, so uh, that's the current state of affairs. It's not ideal, but um, I don't foresee a, like a more... Uh, just way of doing things in the foreseeable future. So if Facebook was too invasive of our privacy, we would all just leave Facebook quickly? <laughs> if the public was very much aware and the media was giving them a hard time, um, there's also you know, manipulation of the messaging by uh, you know, Facebook and other places. Um, I think media literacy itself is just another skill that we can kind of dive into it uh, further. That's uh, a good point, I mean, to follow up on, on this discussion, that right, it's not so easily Facebook, right? And that there, we've become, and once our photos are on some site and that's where we keep them, it's, it's not like we can just switch over. And it's not, Instagram doesn't make it so easy, right? So I decide I'm going to move all my stuff over somewhere else. But I think also for this debate, it's not just about commercialism, is what I would say, too. And that, you know, I'm thinking of Chris Peterson's thesis on user-generated censorship, that the kinds of censorship that occur at Fox News or the New York Times and the things, stories that are decided not to be put out for whatever reason or the angle one takes on them uh, is one kind of thing. And you can identify, it seems one of the things there is you can identify the Rush Limbaugh's or the, the editor-in-chief and things like that. Whereas you can have a kind of mob mentality, right, that votes down certain kinds of stories, votes up other kinds of stories, so that the values that get encoded into these platforms, or not only through the way they're designed, but by the way users take advantage of these algorithms, seems also kind of a big issue as well. I mean, I, do, I agree with you. It's, the democratization potential of these platforms is great, and, and it is very different, and it is more open, but they're also susceptible, it seems to me, For sure. uh, to a more, possibly more invisible kind of manipulation, and also one where it's much harder to identify that trail of uh, that manipulation. 
And so, it, just to keep that part of the conversation too, I guess it, it's more of a comment uh, than not. But I, I also, I, I always think of it because it's, there's always this opposition between, well, people are just trying to make money, but then um, it seems to me the other side of democracy is that there's a, a mob mentality and a lynch mentality that can really happen. And you know, so maybe the Boston bombing and the false news at first is kind of a, an example of how the, once the ball gets rolling, it can be hard to stop. So anyway, I just want to throw that in there too. Can I ask a kind of third question? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, and I, I tweeted this as my second question, if I could ask one, if you have any thoughts about the ethics of large-scale pattern recognition, hmm. that actually perhaps communities may actually have rights to privacy or privacy of practices or whatever it may be, and how that intersects with these kinds of tools. Uh, it's, I think it's not entirely unrelated to yeah, this critical right. inquiry about. For sure, yeah. Um, I think definitely any algorithm that tries to find behavioral patterns could be um, used in a very malicious way. Um, and you know, any data that's posted with the expectation that it's private or semi-private um, should not be aggregated and analyzed and used in that way. And every company has a term of, terms of service that they just you know publicly say that although users probably don't know what those are um, from a, from the perspective of public Twitter streams, I feel like there's not too much doubt or too much concern there um, whereas if I started mining other data sources, that would be very um, you know slippery still blurring the lines. Um, and you know, I really feel like um, you know, there's the corporate forces, there's the government forces, and, and then there's the kind of public voice of social media that emerges through just uh, a lot of people making the mob mentality. I really feel like the fourth estate, the the press, and for example, the New York Times editorial page. Hopefully, that is the voice of reason for society, and that's what. Hopefully, Habermas slowly kind of bubbles up into that those type of editorial that counterbalances mob behavior, and that's why journalism and informing the public with high quality news, but not just news, but analysis and a, a, a kind of opinion page that is worth the brand that it's um, you know it's broadcasting in. Um, I think that's really one safeguard we have uh, in society. Well, I was just reflecting on some of these questions. Everybody's uh, looking at the, the back side and the dark side. Uh, one of the things that just occurred to me was the digital divide. And, of course. Uh, some of these aggregation systems sort of push in a certain direction. You wonder about the voices of people who may not, uh, you know, be as well represented uh, in, you know, the social media sphere. And so, I don't know, I, I don't know exactly what to do with that, but it does seem to me that sometimes news begins to get generated uh, in a smaller and smaller and more technically sophisticated sector, and I'm just wondering if, you know, that's an issue. Yeah, that's probably the biggest concern throughout my uh, research and making the product, the fact that anyone uh, who is on Twitter is of a certain demographic and uh, socioeconomic status. So 
my concern is that if a journalist has faith that Keeper can give them the full story and do all the research, they're not a good journalist because they don't have this awareness of the diversity of unheard voices in the world. Um, and they will have to actually definitely get out of the offices and go uh, look at the undercover neighborhoods and make phone calls and really be on the street to follow their beat in the old-fashioned way. So I feel like journalism school cannot change their curriculum in those like storytelling and, and investigative journalism field research methods. Uh, they still need to train journalists to do that, plus the data piece, uh, in order to get stories from multiple perspectives. And one of the reasons I'm very much... Um, a part and affiliated in teaching at CUNY journalism schools because the student body itself is very, uh, you know, diverse and representative of the city itself because the tuition and the entry is, you know, like a fraction of what private schools would be. So that's a mission also, I think, to keep in our minds um, as we proceed with analyzing the social data, but the, the underground data also has to be paint, and you have to paint an accurate picture as well. We're about out of time. Does anyone have a final question or comment? Um, <laughs> I'll get mine. Don't worry. Um, uh, well, again, thank you um, so much. That was really fantastic. Um, and uh, so everyone knows we're having a reception with uh, dinner-type food. Um, uh, immediately following this on the third floor in the building next door, but you can just sort of follow the horde and we'll make our way over there. Um, next week, uh, the colloquium is um, our very own Ethan Zuckerman, should be fantastic. Um, in building four, uh, not here, but the full information about that is on the CMSW website. Um, thank you all for coming, and thank you so much for coming down to New York from New York. Thank you, everyone.